Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. Welcome to another issue of The Crux. And we've got another really timely guest this week. Dorothy Lund is an associate professor at the USC University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And she's written extensively on corporate governance issues, but most recently a great piece in HBR, Harvard Business Review, about political donations, corporate political donations. And and as I say, couldn't be more timely given some of the things that we're seeing companies face today, not only Disney with the Don't Say Gay legislation in Florida, the January 6th insurrection and political donations associated with that, and even think about some of the things going on in Texas and other states regarding abortion rights and company pledges to end donations to some of the legislators involved in sponsoring that kind of lawmaking. So let's go to Dorothy and Mike Fernandez. I do want to remind you that the crux is made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, where I work, and we really appreciate the support that they give us. So let's go to our discussion with Dorothy Lund of the University of Southern California Gould School of Law. Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Today on The Crux, our guest is Dorothy Lund. Dorothy's research focuses on corporate law and corporate governance. Her op-eds have appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and, and most recently, fantastic article I ran across in Harvard Business Review titled, Corporate Political Spending is Bad Business. No doubt there what that's about, which he authored with Leo Strine Jr., a lawyer and former Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court. Uh, As I say, as the title suggests, Dorothy and Leo argue that political spending is, quote-unquote, time-wasting and costly, and that there is no sound business justification for corporate giving as it exists today. After reading this and some of the rest of Dorothy's work, I wanted to have her on the crux because she seems so able to sit between legal and communications, you know, sort of a balance of the business and citizen interests that effective corporate governance seeks. So Dorothy, welcome to The Crux. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. So let's go back to a decision that we all like to lament. 2010, the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. Through it, companies can spend through their treasuries on political campaigns, not just through voluntary donations of employees. And as a result, since then, in your article, you point out that political spending indeed by U.S. companies has skyrocketed. In the article, you argue that 
corporate political contributions are not only bad for democracy, but they're bad for business. And this can seem somewhat counterintuitive, given it was corporations that argued for the right to pour shareholder money into politics and who won the right to do so after Citizens United. Can you help us understand why you see political spending as it's practiced today as bad for business as well as democracy? Yeah, sure. You know, there's a few different reasons to believe that corporate political spending is bad business. And, you know, I'm going to just highlight two. The first is really the classic sense of bad business. And, And there's empirical evidence that suggests that companies that spend more on, put you know, put more money into politics, that spending, that higher spending is actually correlated with lower firm value. And I think mm. this makes some intuitive sense because if you're a company that's competing on regulatory shortcuts, rather than, you know, selling quality goods and services and evolving to meet consumer demand, you're not going to be as well positioned in the marketplace. So, we also mean bad in another sense, which is, you know, this actually is is really lacking in legitimacy. And this is, mm-hmm. you know, the tr- traditional idea and something that corporate law scholars have been preoccupied with is the idea that we have this separation of ownership and control. We've got corporate managers who decide how assets are allocated and they don't always act in ways that benefit their shareholders. And this is known as an agency problem. Again, corporate law right. are very preoccupied with this. So in this instance, I think we can see this agency problem is really pronounced given that, you know, the typical shareholder has diverse political views. They might not want their dollars spent in the way that corporate management is deciding to spend them. Mm-hmm. Corporate management in particular skews Republican And so there's this very severe agency problem that leads to a lack of legitimacy in this, which again, we think is a problem, bad, you know, quote unquote, bad business. So Dorothy, so that's, that's really interesting about business. What's your answer on why is it bad for democracy? So this one is, is very easy to see much more clear cut you know, that if we have an influx of large sums of money into our our political process, well, that's going to damage citizen trust in government. There's arguments and research suggesting that actually suppresses voter turnout. Uh, And, you know, the perception, and, and again, there's evidence to support this, that this ends up leading to laws that are putting corporate interests above public welfare. It's skewing regulation. There's also a perception that this results in corruption. So, you know, these are obviously of of great, great social importance, these concerns. We didn't focus on them to the same degree in our HBR piece, because I think the case as to why corporate political spending is actually a bad business practice is less well understood. So, so, so Dorothy, welcome to the Crux. I was very excited that uh, you were able to, to join us today. Uh, but, you know, the deluge of, of corporate money and with transparency and attention to these issues, companies are being called out when their actions don't match their words or values. You describe the credibility cost to companies that publicly support one position but quietly fund efforts that undermine public positions. 
I'm just wondering, as, as one example, you cite Google's public opposition to Georgia's voting rights restrictions, but mm-hmm. also point out its quiet funding of the Republican State Leadership Committee, which was a group that led efforts to change Georgia's voting laws. Is there something about political spending decisions that are being made today that lead to contradictory actions? You know, are leaders with external views such as communicators being left out of these decisions? Is it because the reputational damage is hard to quantify? Why is it that we kind of live in this world where maybe people want to characterize their actions as being in line with democracy, and yet where's the accountability? Yes, it's a great question. You know, I think I think this change that, that Citizens United brought about really led to this, you know, hypocrisy trap. You know, the basic idea is that, you know, before Citizens United, corporate management, they just couldn't say yes to solicitations for political donations. So they weren't asked. It was it was easy, you know, and then well, they could give through a pack, sure, but there were, you know, very clear limits on spending under that arrangement. And so now we have this total freedom to give, which really creates pressure for executives. Well, if, if I'm going to give to one, I've got to give to all. How do I just give to the, you know, Democratic members of the House Energy Committee? I can't do that. I got to give to everybody. And if I stop giving to one group, maybe I'm going to lose out on the ability to influence regulation when everybody else continues to give. And so the problem that you, you know, I think comes through in your question is that uh, there's real unpredictability when you're giving to a politician or a political party committee. You don't know what that politician is going to do or even has done if you're not. Of course, voters feel the same way, right? Because there's a multiplicity of issues (laughs) and I might like candidate A for one issue and you might like candidate A for yet another issue. Yeah, it's true. This is not this is not specific to this this context, but I think something that does make this environment more challenging today for corporate executives is, you know, the world has become so heavily attuned to, you know, quote unquote ESG, which is environmental and social and governance concerns. This is also, you know, can be thought of as corporate social responsibility. You know, the idea that corporations should be acting in a more other regarding way. And you see executives responding by, you know, speaking out on climate change, on gender diversity, racial diversity. And so now all of a sudden you're in this situation where executives are speaking out and saying, well, we really support, you know, getting to net zero. Meanwhile, they've been giving in an unprincipled way. This creates substantial risk uh, down the road when it comes to light that you know, some of these donations were supporting candidates or causes that really undermine these these values that they're espousing publicly. But but isn't that the challenge, I think, in politics in general? I mean, you know, some of us have talked about the problem of agency yeah. anyway, you know, that a single politician takes a multiplicity of positions and a company even going in and supporting a candidate may have a very narrow interest in two or three public policy items that that person stands for and 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 not really have a great interest in the panoply of other issues that that candidate is engaged in and part of the challenge is too is that if we all live in a world 
of Citizens United where anybody can give anything in any amount that, you know, in some sense, you're almost asking a corporation to say, we're not going to play ball. Meanwhile, unions can play ball. Other public interests can play ball. What kind of provides, is there a way to get to a mechanism that allows everybody to kind of compete on an equal footing? Yeah. So, so Mike, first of all, you know, I think you can be, you can use your voice as a company without spending treasury dollars. You know, you can engage in lobbying. We're, we're okay with that as long as it's done in a principled way. You know, if you are a business that's important to a particular community, that community is going to care about the business's perspective. You know, I think that business already has outsized influence in communities and, and through lobbying, you know, if you want to talk about an even playing field, you know, I would say that going back to a situation prior to Citizens United, where we didn't have corporations pouring millions of dollars into the political process, would be closer to a situation where you have, yeah, the interests of labor are, are able to be heard. People who are interested in, in regulation of environmental harm are, you know, not having their policies drowned out by businesses that, you know, will be affected by them. I think, again, this is, I think that business has plenty of ways to be influential without going to, you know, spending treasury dollars, which again, you know, problematic for the reasons I mentioned at the beginning in terms of our democratic process, but it's also just a, you know, a bad business decision given the risks that are created. Mike, for the very reasons you say, you know, you, you may think a candidate has a great stance on some regulatory issue that's relevant to your your business, but meanwhile, you know they made homophobic comments five years ago. And as soon mm-hmm. as your, you know, the stakeholders and, and the public learns about this, they're gonna you know they're gonna kill you. So it's just there's there's so much risk to engaging in this sort of unprincipled political spending of treasury dollars that, Mm -hmm. you know, I think can really be minimized through just getting out of this game. Mm -hmm. You know, and Dorothy, as we record this and Mike, you know, we've had evidence of this over the past few weeks with Disney, Mm -hmm. right? With uh, the new CEO, Bob Bob Chappick and and the Don't Say Gay legislation in, in Florida. And not only did they sort of try to punt on taking a position, meaning Disney, on that legislation initially, and have since apologized and, and spoken out against it. But of course, there are these new journalists that focus very specifically on political donations and pointed out, in fact, that Disney had uh, made donations to some of the sponsors. And mm-hmm. some of this came to the light or became a bigger issue because of employee pressure about those donations in that position. So there are new dynamics at play in this that makes it riskier than it has been in the past. I, com- I completely agree and that's a great example. Yeah, you know what would be helpful I think for our listening audience, Dorothy, is talk a little bit because I think there's, there's the tendency for us to speak in generalities because of the post-Citizens United world we live in and what the world was like before where you that we still have in part with political action committees that have limitations on uh, what a PAC can spend. Could you walk us through that? 
Yeah. So what exactly did Citizens United do to the law? Is that is that the question? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So essentially, you know, th that decision reversed this longstanding prohibition on independent expenditures by corporations. So it, it used to be the case that, you know, a company could raise money through a PAC by going to shareholders, going to employees who would voluntarily, you know, make contributions to the PAC and that PAC would then spend that money. But it wasn't the case that a company could use treasury dollars to support a PAC or a candidate. And so this, this longstanding prohibition was overturned in, in 2010. They, you know, the court basically said this violates the First Amendment. And this allowed corporations to spend unlimited sums to support or oppose political candidates. And, and just to be clear, not, not just corporations, but anybody labor unions, right, nonprofits. But, you know, the big the big difference, I think, in terms of effect is that, you know, we've seen a lot more corporate spending. But it is interesting. I mean, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me is as a Democrat who, who, who works as a corporate executive is just that, you know, during the Obama years, I know that Democrats got greater facility in managing independent committees as well. Yeah, just here, here a few stats on the change. You know, I think in the 2020 federal election, Open Secrets reports that corporations spent over $100 million. This is definitely an understatement of the total because these amounts can be hidden. They calculated that a billion dollars in dark money was spent wow. in that election alone. So, you know, that's a, that's a big difference. That's a lot of money. Yeah, because in some sense, isn't part of the problem is the lack of transparency in this space. It's not just that there are lots of dollars, is that to some degree, we don't get to see all the dollars in the same way we do if, if money from individuals who work for a corporation or are share owners are giving to a political action committee. Yeah, I think this is a huge, a huge issue. And, you know, from just Again, going back to the business case, and if I, if you're a shareholder, most of the time you don't even, you don't have any idea of what your entrusted capital is going towards, which candidates, which causes. It's all done without any disclosure to the shareholders, and this is something that shareholders are. This has become a very popular shareholder proposal. Just asking for something that you would think is just sort of like a baseline thing. Just tell us yes. what you're doing, you know, where the money <laughs> yeah. is going. And still, you know, it's it's not not every company that make even makes that disclosure, let alone t taking on some of the other reforms that we think would be beneficial in this space. What, one other thing I'd be curious about is a lot of companies said that they were going to pause their contributions or they weren't going to give contributions to political leaders who had participated in the January 6th Capitol insurrection. I'm just wondering, has, has, has there been any research as to whether or not corporations have, have made those kinds of claims that they actually lived up to that promise? Yeah, so there is actually a study that looked at, you know, following through on, you know, these, these commitments by companies. A lot of companies in the wake of the Capitol riot said, we're going to pause, we're going to review, but, you know, your instinct that not sure, you know, not, not that long after those statements were made, 
everything's kicked up again. You know, most companies that made pauses have jumped back in and continue to make political contributions. A few have not. And, you know, Twitter, HP, Schwab, those are just three examples that come to mind of companies that shut down their packs indefinitely. And, you know, this, this was done. Schwab made this decision and, you know, in their press release describing it, they basically said, you know, and we've got this really divided political climate. We've had this capital riot. We are just not, we do not think this makes business sense for us. You know, it's because they say it's becoming more difficult to stay true to our longstanding commitment of bipartisanship and, and navigating this complex environment runs the risk of distracting us from doing what we do best, which is serving our clients. So they really, you know, they got, this is not good. This does not make good business sense for us. We see the risk that comes from these political spending practices and we're just going to shut this whole thing down. And I think that's, you know, a very sensible approach for, for companies today. And Dorothy, that's so interesting. And it builds on something you said earlier about Citizens United. And you say it in the HBR article about this puts more pressure on CEOs and, and companies because previously you could say, well, we can't do that, right? And now that the door is open, there's almost a FOMO attitude, mm-hmm. right? Fear of missing out on, on a candidate or a politician and some interest that they may have in your company or represent. Yeah. I'm I just wondering, boy, we spent a lot of time on this at GE when I was at GE, thinking about it, holding fundraisers, trying to decide whether we were going to meet share owner requests for reports on political giving. And I just wondering, it's, it seems like, and Schwab seems to have said it, one less thing to manage, uh-huh. right? Yeah. It, it, given everything companies are facing today, is the issue of political given being, you, you've mentioned several companies, and Starbucks, I think too, Dorothy, right? At one point yeah, that's had given right. up on political giving. Are, are more companies considering following Schwab? in deciding just to to stop? Well, you know, I think I imagine, you know, we saw this escalation and in, in pausing and abandoning corporate corporate PACs um, in the wake of January 6th. And I think right. the more that we see these companies embroiled in scandals that create real business risk, I think we will see more companies making making the same decision, just saying, you know, this this is a distraction. To do this right today is going to take too much work. And it really, you know, if you wanted to have, and, and we can talk more about what I think you need to do to minimize this risk, if you wanted to keep, you know, spending t- treasury dollars in the political process, but it's, it's work, it's hard. And, and, you know, most of the business executives that we spoke to really missed the old days. You know, they said, oh, it was so much easier when we <laughs> didn't have to try to navigate this, you know, and we could just say, no, sorry, we, you know, or, you know, we weren't even asked. And now we're getting, you know, asked right and left. And there is, you know, oh, the FOMO is, is a great way of describing it. Oh, well, maybe we have to give just so we don't lose out on some influence. And it's it's just, it's tricky to navigate. And it's a big distraction from, you know, the from building up a good business and running it well. So I think that's all spot on. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of The Crux. On The Crux, we discuss the intersection of communications, business, and society. Follow us 
at The Crux on Facebook and Twitter. You can also find our episodes on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, and on our website at thecruxpodcast.org. Now, let's get back to the episode. Yeah, the, the old days, though, expression is, is interesting. It depends upon what you are describing as the old days. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you go, if you go back uh, into the 60s, I mean, 1960s, there were, you know, there were people giving millions of dollars to individual candidates. And post-Watergate, you know, was the creation, actually, of political action committees as a reform which a lot of people forget is, you know, the first Federal Election Campaign Act actually also listed limits that later got knocked out by Buckley versus Vallejo, a Supreme Court decision in kind of that post-Watergate environment. And then was established a new Federal Election Campaign Act that said you could have political action committees, but it's individuals giving money to that PAC, and the PAC decides who they're going to give money to, but it's not money from the coffers of the corporation or from a labor union's uh, central fund, uh, or or it's got to be individuals giving into an organization, and then that organization in turn giving money and with limits in place. I'm just wondering, boy, Mike. You know, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. That was really, <laughs> that was, yeah, it, you know, it, it, let's go back all the way to Washington. <laughs> but you probably made a donation. Yeah. Right? Oh, I've, I've made lots of donations through the years. I've made donations to to political action committees. I've given money to individual candidates. I mean, in my own backyard today, I have a home. Well, I, I work in, in Calgary, Canada. As an American, I live in South Carolina and I give money to Jim Clyburn, have no uh, qualms about doing that. But where I think we are is, 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 at least where I am, is, is wanting to know, is there a way, and as, as a legal scholar, is there a way or a logic that allows us at some point to make a run at Citizens United, and, and what would that logic be? Well, Mike, it's a great it's a great observation because you know it's a reminder that things can change, and that you know we did get this shock in 2010, and and you're right that people are generally opposed to it, and and you know we could get another shock, we could get another change. You know, the Supreme Court did deal legislatures a blow and limiting the ability to regulate, you know, corporate political spending by saying that, you know, it's entitled to First Amendment protection. But, you know, we can, there's a lot of regulatory proposals out there that, you know, are, are working with improving the system that we have. You know, for example, in the wake of the Capitol riots, we got the Shareholder Protection Act of 2021, which would have yeah, would have would have required full disclosure of treasury expenditures that are that, that are being made. Any that are proposed to be made would need to be put to a shareholder vote mm-hmm. and to be authorized. Anything that wasn't authorized by shareholders would not would it be prohibited. So you can imagine if something like that was to happen, that could maybe constrain some of the some of the problematic outcomes, at least from the perspective of shareholders. But you're right. This 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 could all. There are legislative tools available 
that could perhaps improve the system. Yeah, well, and it's interesting because, I mean, in one sense, I mean, Buckley versus Vallejo equated, the decision ultimately equated money with speech, mm -hmm. thus the connection to the First Amendment. And then Citizens United even pulled that in a more literal fashion, not just equating, but almost saying it is. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. um, and, and and I think that my, my sense is that that's a flaw. It's a flaw in our system. But let me take you in a different direction. If companies still want to spend from their treasury, and, and clearly the law allows them to do so, you recommend they put out a political spending plan for shareholders to vote on. How would that work in practice? Yeah, so this was this was an idea that was actually endorsed by you know the investment legend Jack Bogle, the inventor of the index funds. It's been proposed in several bills pending in Congress. You know, and and the basic idea is, you know, you think up in advance what donations will we make? And you disclose that to shareholders and mm. give them the chance to vote yes or no. And if they vote no, those, you know, that can't, that can't be made. And, you know, getting back to the legitimacy problem that we started with, the idea that this is bad business that, and you might be concerned if you're, you know, sort of a classic law and econ type that, you know, management is going to use their discretion over shareholder money in ways that are not beneficial to shareholders. Well, this would be a clear way of addressing that problem, you know, saying, okay, if, if shareholders authorize it, you can do it. But if they don't, you can't. Of course, this is not to say that management wouldn't have a role to play in oversight and implementation, you know, and I would envision, you know, a committee of independent directors that would, you know, develop and approve these policies and, and supervise the implementation. They would, this would engage, you know, require reviewing in real time, you know, are these donations squaring with our values and with our policies? Everything, of course, would need to be disclosed. So this is, you know, getting back to Gary's point about this is a lot of work. <laughs> It is a lot of work. Well, and and the and the shareholders aren't going to get a vote on the exact list of people, I would imagine, because that would be pretty onerous, and it wouldn't necessarily be timely given when primaries take place, when elections take place, and when you go for you know your proxy statement and a share owner vote. Yeah, well, I think you know you'd have to think through how how to secure that authorization. I think. Ideally, you would, you know, shareholders would weigh in on the um, mm -hmm. specific candidates or, you know, specific types of groups that, you know, that that would be be donating to. And yes, that would create, that would be difficult to do in real time. And, you know, maybe a consequence of that is you wouldn't see quite as much of that activity. But, you know, again, again you, you wouldn't be in a situation where you would, would have a donation that's hidden from shareholders and not authorized by them. So, you know, I think which would be an overall an overall improvement. So, Dorothy, it's th these issues are not just a lot of work for CEOs and boards and in, in GE, for example, you know, the the government affairs folks and the legal teams, but for communicators as well, as yeah. this becomes more of a public issue. You're a former corporate legal counsel. Do you have any advice for communicators? 
on how they should work with their legal teams, their government relations folks on this issue? So I, I wouldn't call this legal advice, uh, <laughs> but I think, you know, a common sense approach to any PR strategy or advice for a company that wants to speak out on issues like climate change, employee rights, diversity, uh, which, you know, again, there's increasing pressure for companies and executives yes. to, be making, to be speaking out on these issues. So I think if they're going to do that, they should really be sure that they're not taking a stand that's going to be undermined by their business practices elsewhere, including their, you know, spending active, you know, their, their political activities. And so, you know, as part of that, you'd want to have a good sense of who you're donating to. Are your political spending activities consistent with your core values that you're talking about on a day-to-day -day basis? Mm -hmm. You know, if you say we care a lot about averting climate change and getting to net zero, won't look great when, you know, it comes to light that you've been funding climate change deniers. You know, you, you have to make sure there's alignment between these communications because people really don't like hypocrisy. You know, this is when companies are perceived as looking hypocritical, you know, in our, in our piece, we talk about an example with Target, who was, you know, a sponsor of the Twin Cities Pride Parade, had gone out of its way to portray itself as an ally to LGBTQ issues. And then, you know, when it came to light that they'd been funding a candidate that had made homophobic remarks in the past, people really went crazy. And this was, exactly. again, enough. The scandal was enough for them to put a pause on there and completely revamp. You know, they, they did the right thing. They revamped their political spending practices. But this is something a company should be aware of in the first place, have a keen eye on this risk. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that's great advice. And in fact, I, I think what it requires is a more holistic view about how you're saying and then what are you doing. And your actions need to more closely, you know, follow what you say you're doing. I actually lived in Minneapolis when that was going on. There was even the company had a sponsorship at the time or some marketing activity with Lady Gaga, who pulled out wow. in the midst of that and kind of forced the company's hand, if I recollect correctly. But Dorothy, you write and study on a broader range of governance issues. At the beginning of the pandemic in 2020, you and Leo Strine co-authored an article for the New York Times that was critical of the current corporate governance system inside companies. In that, you write, we are paying the price for a corporate governance system that lacks focus on financial soundness, sustainable wealth creation, and the fair treatment of workers. It's been two years since you wrote that. Is this still the case? And what are the most maybe egregious examples, but maybe more importantly, what would you propose to change the system? Yeah, so I think the pandemic in many ways caused you know, public and companies to understand Wow, our stakeholder taking care of our stakeholders, thinking about our stakeholders is really important for business. You know, just to take one concrete example, having a handle on worker health concerns that had to be paramount. Otherwise, there was going to be no business to run. People weren't going to show up. And I think there was, I wouldn't call it a turning point, but I think it was another sort of point in favor of this evolution that we're seeing in in, in corporate governance for people are, are hyper aware of how awareness of stakeholders, consideration of stakeholders 
that makes good business sense. You know, that reduces business risk. That leads to long-term value creation. It's going to help companies raise capital from investors who are increasingly looking for investments that are consistent with their values. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that we've moved away from profit maximization as our lodestar for corporate law and corporate governance. It's to say that no longer, I think, is it is it fair to say or is the consensus view that single-minded focus on shareholders at the exclusion of everything else is the best way to run your business for the long term. Instead, you know, you've got to be paying some attention to your employees, you know, to the environment, to these communities. And that is going to be how you get, you know, long-term value creation, that, that you know, sustainable value creation. So you buy into the Larry Fink stakeholder capitalism <laughs> thought here? Uh, I have so many thoughts about that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, so do a lot of people. Well, uh, you know, days. again, I think that's sort of consistent with what and and he's he's walked back some of those initial very lofty statements by speaking about them sort of in the way that I was just now, which is, mm-hmm. you know, stakeholder governance is a means to shareholder value creation. We're not we're not revisiting the ends or the goals of this system. Like I'm 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 representing shareholders and I I want shareholders to to make money. But again, it's this awareness of, well, you know, thinking about thinking about stakeholders is is really important for shareholder value. Whether or not that's the whole story, you know, I've always thought of that as sort of like the win-win argument. Makes me wonder if there are situations where there are trade-offs that people are not being so um, not acknowledging. Yeah. You know, it can't be the case that looking out for your stakeholders is always good for shareholders because what, well, you know, there would be nothing interesting in that conversation about, well, should we prioritize shareholders or stakeholders? It's the same thing. So I think there, it's a little bit of a rosy eyed view in my, in my view, but I think it's more of a balancing act, right? Yeah. Mike say more about that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think that when you're making decisions, you have you have to look at the full panoply of impacts on one's business. And then fundamentally, my belief, I'm, I, I was trained, believe it or not, as an, an accountant and uh, had a master's degree in accounting. And in accounting, there's there's a concept called the going concern concept. And the basic logic is that you would not have financial statements if the goal of the institution or the organization isn't to sustain, to continue over a period of time. That's why we have points of comparison from one year to the next. Yeah, exactly. When we talk about stakeholder capitalism, or we talk about a broader share of stakeholders, or we talk about sustainability to the point of environmental sustainability, in some sense, a corporation's fiduciary responsibility is to think about what's going to prompt the sustainability of the corporation over a longer period of time. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, then Absolutely. All of these things from how are employees impacted, how are communities impacted, how is a broader society impacted by the decisions and choices that a company makes is certainly vital to the long-term 
success of that enterprise. So it prompts me to think that it's, you know, we can look at a specific issue and yes, there could be trade-offs, but the, the challenge I think for leadership is to justify the, the near-term against the long-term objectives. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice way of, of framing it. And it's, and it's also when, and Mike, and this is where I thought you were going before, what was that? Accounting? Well, I don't know what course <laughs> number that was in accounting, but it's also, it's somewhat simplistic to say we're a stakeholder as the business roundtable. We're focused on all stakeholders because it is a juggling act among all of those stakeholders. Right. And some and, are good, at, at times are going to be more important than exactly, others. Exactly. Right? Exactly. And you may have pension obligations that you need to meet and you can't make investments in other places. And, and so the capital allocation decisions and, and, and all of that are not always optimal for every stakeholder and therefore subject to some reputational risk. So Dorothy, I'm going to ask you a last question here because I, I noticed that you're an English major and I was an English literature major. Oh, wow. So, so I, I'm always looking for friends. You know, Mike's going to talk about accounting forever. You know, on, on our <laughs> podcast here. No, we can start a book club. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so I just wonder. You know, you, you even won an award for as an undergrad for your essay on in economics. A lot of communicators and even my students at Boston University often ask about, man, how do you get things through the lawyers? Yeah. <laughs> Meaning language through the lawyers. And it seems with your background and the writing that you do, uh, that you'd be a great partner in that. Has, has storytelling been a big part of the work that you do as a legal scholar, but more broadly, the ability to summarize and, and simplify and, and be persuasive? How important has it been to you? Oh, so important. I mean, you know, storytelling, writing, that's, that's everything in, in scholarship. You know, if, if you can draw people in with anecdotes, examples, um, tell a narrative that is, is easy for people to digest and understand and that resonates with them, if you can communicate the importance of what you're saying and, and why it matters, well, that's how you're going to get readers who are going to read your work and understand it and engage with it, which is, you know, your goal. You know, you know we all write, you know, you get used to in, in academia, you write a paper that maybe, you know, 10 people read and it's a little <laughs> bit lonely. But, you know, the goal is to have stuff that, that a broad audience will engage with, understand, enjoy. You know, the dream is when people like you call us up and say, oh, I read something you wrote and, and it resonated with me. And so to do that, you've got to, you've got to have some writing skills. You've got to have some ability to draw people in, you know, you can be a very smart person with great ideas, but if you can't communicate those, it's just not, you know, you're not going to go very far. So yes, I think, I think storytelling writing, it's a, a hugely important part of my work. Terrific. Well, well said, and really appreciate this discussion. I highly recommend the piece in Harvard Business Review that you co-authored with Leo Strine on why political donations are bad business. And I think every communicator listening to this ought to give that a look. So Dorothy, thank you for being on The Crux. It's been a terrific discussion. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Crux. Our producer is Boston University student, Anna Huynh. 
This episode and other episodes are made possible by the Boston University College of Communication, or COM as it is known. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, COM is BU's home to the studies of advertising, emerging media, film and TV, journalism, media science, and public relations. At COM, we seek to build understanding among people through better communication. Find out more at www.bu.edu forward slash com.